Well, we're moving into that section of the book of Revelation, aren't we, where there is absolutely no doubt that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This morning I'd like to move into chapter 15 and look at that second picture in chapter 15 and um, <clears throat> learn the lessons. You remember in the chapter how that we're sort of looking at John as he paints these pictures, aren't we? And um, looking over his shoulder almost as he does it. And, um, you know, he starts off with those dark colors, isn't it? Those dark foreboding colors that sort of suggest something that makes you tremble, something that's dark and something that's powerful. And he's... He starts to paint in verse 1 when he sees another great sign. And it's as though he just takes those colors and he puts a a title across his picture. Uh, And the title is really the final wrath of God. Then he puts the brushes aside and he drew for us this lovely, lovely picture of the redeemed. And they're, they're standing on that sea of glass and they're standing there and they're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And he's painting with vibrancy. He's painting with life. There's a thrill. There's a, a song. There is joy. There is gladness in the colors that he uses. And we reach the end of that as we saw the singers. We looked at where they stood. And we listened to what they sang. And then we ended with those lovely listening to their call where they said, Fear him. Glorify him. Worship him. And may I add, and crown him Lord of all. Now we move on to, because John then puts the brushes down as it were, and he takes up those somber colors once again, and he starts to paint for us this second vision. Before I read it, just get the picture in your mind so as we know where we're going, and you'll understand it a lot better. He paints a picture of a temple. <clears throat> that's a good start, you think, that's a lovely start. And this temple is important to notice, it's open, all right? You can look at the temple and see right through into the presence of God. And coming out of that temple, there are seven angels. They're beautifully dressed, dressed in white, golden sashes. And as they come out of that temple, they stand there, and then one of the living creatures comes out of the temple and gives to each a bowl, a golden bowl, And in that bowl, the sum total of all those bowls is the full wrath of God. You see, you look back at that temple because John painted it and then he started to paint this. But then he said, he went back and he put a few changes on that temple and he put smoke pouring out of it. Smoke's pouring out of it. And no one can enter. Even though it's open, it's open, remember? But no one can can enter. There's no one that can go in. All right, now let's read it. You'll understand it better. See the picture in your mind. Verse 5. And after that, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven, the inner sanctuary, if you like, of the temple tabernacle itself, in other words, right into the presence of God, was opened. Now the seven angels came out of the temple and they had seven plagues. They were clothed in pure and white linen and their breasts were girded with golden girdles around their chests, these great lovely sashes. 
Then one of the four beasts, or one of the four living creatures, gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, or seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God. Remember verse 1, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. The sum total of the wrath of God, and notice the title, who liveth forever and ever. Notice the descriptor. The God who lives forever and ever. And there he is. He's going back to give another little detail to that temple. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways, pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. The chapter gives you the details that one by one the bowls are poured out. Now let's go back and look again at this temple. And the thing you find out in the temple is that it's opened. I mean the way right into the presence of God is actually open. And you say, this is, this is really something very marvellous. This is, this is exactly what we wanted to hear, that the, the way into the holiest of all is open and that we can go in through the blood of Jesus by the new and living way. But no, this isn't wonderful here. It is wonderful, but in a totally different sense. It's not, it's not open for man to go in. It's open for God to come out. That's what you're looking at here. And it begins with, <coughs> there's a voice, but it begins with this procession of these seven holy angels, white linen and gold sashes. And it's a, it's a procession which I think you must see it as a very solemn procession. There's dignity, there's power. Yes, there's something awesome about it, but they're very solemn. They're not coming out singing along with the redeemed who are there on the crystal sea, not at all. They're coming out to carry in something in there. They're coming out firstly in solemnity. Now, as they do that, one of the living creatures comes out from the temple. Now, the living creatures are those, as it were, in the hierarchy of angels, for there is a hierarchy in the angelic hosts. Michael, the archangel. Seraphim, cherubim. Seraphim, which guard the holiness and declare the holiness of God. Cherubim, who guard the righteousness of God. And many, 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 many other angels who are ministering spirits sent out to look after those who are the heirs of salvation, to serve God's people. Now, this one comes from the very throne of God, the very immediate presence of the throne. And he comes out and he gives them the golden bowls, each one by one. You know, I can see it in my mind, can't you, these golden bowls. They're full to the brim with the sum total of the wrath of God. You almost can sense a there's something like steam or smoke or whatever. You're just rising from off those bowls as solemnly they take them. They realize that being committed to them 
as the messengers and servants of God is the administration of the final judgment of God upon the earth. Done at the commanding voice of one who is in that temple, done at the commanding voice, it says elsewhere, of the one who is by the altar and of the one who sits on the throne. This same Jesus, this same Jesus, who was once and ever is a saviour, is now appointed to judge the world. And notice there, it's the, the wrath of the God in verse 7 there it says the four beasts gave unto the one of the four beasts gave to the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever now we're talking about the God who never dies you may know somebody and you may have done them a wrong you may owe them an apology or you may owe them something, but you know what? You wait long enough, and the person dies. And what happens then? The whole thing's forgotten, isn't it? At least in this life. But it is. It's over. You don't have to say a word. We're dealing now, here, with a God who never dies, if I could put it that way. And you must understand that all sin that's ever been committed is a sin against God. There is a debt that has been reckoned up, and sin is never forgotten by God only if it has been forgiven now any sinner needs to remember that a soul that knows God Christ is saviour their sin is never forgotten until it has been forgiven and then when sin is forgiven God says your sins and your iniquities will I remember no more now I don't know if you've ever worked out how God could forget have you ever thought about that you really think God can forget? Well, i tell you how he does forget. He forgets by choosing not to remember. Now, that's very good. God deliberately makes that choice, never to reverse it. Your sins and the iniquities I will remember no more. So you're getting the picture now, aren't you, that there's the wrath of God and there is sin to be dealt with. It's sin that's been recorded. A sin, none of it's been forgotten because all sin is also against the very God who ultimately will judge the world in that man through that man whom he has appointed. And it's the same Jesus of Calvary. It's the same Jesus of Nazareth. It's the same Jesus of the tomb and the Christ of the resurrection. Same one. Now you look back at that temple because something's going on over there. It says in verse 8, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Get that, the smoke, picturing something of God's glory, God's presence, God's power is there in that temple. He is, as it were, directing all affairs. And it says, and no man can enter. No, you cannot go in. End of story. It's open. It's not now for man to go in. It's for God himself in his holiness and power and majesty to come out. And we've got this vision of the great God of eternity, the God who never dies, in all his absolute holiness. And the root meaning of the word holiness is separate, different, different to, separate from. In other words, the one who is like no other, far above all other, different within himself. 
in his glory and the glory of his, of his righteousness and, and of his wrath and of his power and of his might and of his anger. He's moving out now. And he's moving out in wrath and in judgment. And as he is there in that temple, displaying who he is as a God of wrath, it's filled with smoke. Filled with smoke. You see, the smoke is that, that symbol of a vision which is suffocating. You see that? Suffocating in its power, in its glory, in its awe, and in its awful fear. Smoke. You can't go in. You're being overwhelmed by the God who is there, who is coming out in all his holiness and righteousness to act in judgment and to act in wrath. When you, when you get that picture in your mind, you know, you start to think of those scriptures, don't you? Things like, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing. And then in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. If thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquity in the Psalms, who shall be able to stand? No man can stand in this day. The day, day of his wrath is come, it says in Revelation 6, as they cry out, under the wrath of the Lamb. And who shall be able to stand? See, we're facing here a God who is fearful in his holiness and he's terrible in his judgments. It, it brings to mind that magnificence of Isaiah's vision, doesn't it? When he saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up. You see, that's the notion of his holiness straight away. He's above all. He's separate to all. He's different from all. He is high and he is lifted up. He can lift himself up in his own right. Even if his creature will not honor him, the seraphim will. Because in that house of his, in his house in the temple, his very robes, they fill the temple. You see, you cannot contain God. Just the robe that he has is bigger than the temple in which he dwells, as it were. That's the picture you're getting there. And his, his robes, his, it fills the temple and... The, the seraphim are there and they're moving around and they're conscious of whose presence they're in and they're guarding that holiness and they're crying out, aren't they? They cover their eyes, they cannot look upon such a thing. They cover their feet in humility and they fly in order to bring him glory and they cry one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the pillars in the temple, they just shook at the sound of the voice. That's what you've got here. That's what we're dealing with here. This is the temple we're looking at here. This is the very dwelling place of God that we're considering here. And it says in Isaiah, and the house was filled with smoke. You see, that's a sign of God's presence and of God's glory. It reminds you there of um, Sinai's vision, doesn't it? You know, when the mountain was there and God came down upon that mountain and he pronounced the law and he showed his holiness and his justice and his righteousness and his judgment... And you get verses in the scripture describing it and it says, the mountain, it says, smoked and it was all on fire. You know, blazing up to the heavens. Why? Because God is there. It says, no one could draw near lest they die. You see, no man was able to stand. No man can go into the presence of the unveiled presence of the wrath of God on their own and still remain standing. So fearful was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. 
Now, in this picture, what's happening is all of this, all of these pictures we, we're putting together, all of these thoughts we're gathering up, it, it is all coming out now from the presence of God. Contrasted in your mind. Because once from out of that very same presence, there came love. My word, there did. My word, it did. And that wonderful day when the fullness of the time was come. You know, when God had reached that program, that point in that program of his, and the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. This was love unbounded. This was God giving of himself. This was God taking from his own bosom the son which whom he had begotten, whom he loved. And he was giving him to a world of sinners in order that the father is sending the son. What for? That he might be the savior of the world. And God is taking flesh and becoming a man and drawing near to man and leaving behind the ivory towers into this world of woe. This is love unbounded. Only his great eternal love can make my saviour God. Now that's what came out from the presence of God, from the very dwelling place of God, from the very heart of God, from the holiest of the holies of God. There came his son in order to redeem. But now what's coming out here is not that, it's judgment. It's judgment, all right? Get the picture, it's solemn, isn't it? And don't let us forget, and Revelation unfolds it, that God is not just only a God of love, he is also a God of wrath. And you've got that incredible mystery where you have love and you have wrath coexisting in perfect harmony and balance and absolute perfection in the one being, God. He is a God of love. He is a God of wrath. He's a God of blessing. He's a God of punishment. He's a God of forgiveness. And he's a God of justice. They go together. You might just remember the illustration I gave you to try and reconcile in your mind. How can you conceive of love and anger or wrath existing uh, in the same person? How could you do that? And we we use Demetrio. Well, I'll pick on Alex this morning and I'll say, well, there he is. (laughs) He's got some lovely children, hasn't he? Lovely children. Don't you love to see them? You do. I think of the boys and girls one day playing on the streets of Jerusalem. And you love to be amongst God's people because the one thing that should characterize us as God's people is our love of children. It's getting lost in the world, you see. You see why, don't you? Because they don't know the Savior and they don't know the heart of God. And they don't, they don't know that once the Savior himself became a little child. Oh, wonder of all wonders. So we love to see them with all their faults and failings, even when they're, you know, making such a noise and disturbing us and uh, when they're dribbling their crumbs on the floor and they really shouldn't do such terrible things as that, should they? (laughs) You know, but um, they don't come perfect, you know, not even come clean. (laughs) However, to get back to the point, he loves his children and you can see it in the way he looks after them and cares for them and plays with them. His life is bound up in that child. Now just imagine we go out this morning and we're out the back there and you know, somebody comes and those children starts to do terrible things to those children. And Alex is having his cup of coffee, not thinking much. And then he puts his head out to see all is well. And he sees what's going on. And I tell you, that loving father has turned into a ball of raging Russian fury. 
Now that's bad stuff. You get the picture. He's still the same man. But you see what he sees. He sees the injustice. He sees his children. He sees them. And he sees the aggressor. And he's moved immediately to act righteously. In righteous anger. To administer justice. And to have protection. Now that's how the two go together. And what we're looking at now is the God who sent his son to be the saviour of the world, is now appointing him as that one man whom he has appointed in the which he would judge the world in righteousness. And it is righteous that he should do it. And we'll find that in chapter 16 about the judgments of God. True and righteous are thy judgments, O Lord. It's said not once, it's said a couple of times because the angels all have to acknowledge the absolute truth of the fact it's right for God to move in judgment. After all, what's happened? He has sent his own dear son into the world and what have they done? They did to him as they would, rejected and crucified him. He has been watching his people throughout the millennia and what has he seen? His people have been persecuted. Through the Old Testament, the enemies of the Lord against the people of God. Throughout the New Testament, the enemies of the Lord persecuting the people of God. You don't need to go far today in your mind. Move to lands where the persecution of the Christian is absolutely cruel and dreadful. And you can feel those chilling winds gradually building up in our Western society where somehow they hate the people of God. And God is looking on and he sees they have sent, he sent his son and they rejected him. They, his people are among them and they persecute them. And then what's worse than that, the very mankind that are doing it and have done it are refusing to repent. God has been watching and now he is acting. Love is re- when love is rejected... When sin is unforsaken, there is only wrath that's left. Get it again. When love is rejected and sin is unforsaken, only wrath is left. I didn't say... Good out. A little bit of opposition. (laughs) When love is rejected, I didn't say and sin unforgiven. I said sin unforsaken. Now this is important. We need to understand this. You see, I may have the forgiveness of my sins. The truth is, I can come and say to you, I've got my sins forgiven and I know Christ is my saviour. And yet you look at me and I don't show any evidence of it in my life. So what do you mean? Well, I can tell you now, sin forsaken is the best proof and evidence of sin that has been forgiven. All right? After all, if you've had a sense of sin, a sense of the fact that you've offended God, a sense of a fact that sin is a vile and evil thing of which you are guilty, and you have come in humility and brokenness to pray and plead with God for forgiveness for your sins because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and you receive it and your heart is filled with gratitude and joy, you never want to go back and do it again. Not only to bring the guilt back to yourself as it were, but to bring the grief to the heart of the God who loved you. So I say it again, love is rejected, sin unforsaken, only wrath is left. And what's happening here? Notice again in that verse, no man is able to stand. This is an abnormal situation that no one can stand in the temple. Have you ever thought of the picture of the temple in the days of the Lord Jesus? What does it say? Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax gatherer. They were very different people with very different prayers. But they went into the temple to pray. 
And the Lord Jesus said, my father's house, he said, it's a house of prayer. But you see, there's no prayers now. You can't pray now. Because you can't go in. And the truth is this. God is now no longer listening to the prayers of men and women on earth. He's actually listening to the prayers of the martyrs in heaven. You know, underneath the altar, those souls crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? God says, I'm listening now. And if that's bad enough, you cannot pray for God is not listening. The fact is, no one else can go in. And it's not just that the prayers can't go in, but you know, the priest can't go in. Because that was the one man who, with the blood, could go right into the presence of God. But if you can't take a priest into this temple, especially in the presence of the wrath and holiness and righteousness and judgment of God, it means you've got no mediator. That's what you've got. No mediator, no advocate, and no intercessor. No one to carry in a sacrifice. Now that's the picture of the day of judgment. Men may cry out, but their cry cannot be heard because there's no intermediary. There's nobody to carry that cry into the, into the ears of our holy God who is still the God of love. He is ever that. But there's none there that can do it. There is mercy no more. No plea can be heard. No mediator can be found. No advocate will stand. No intercessor. And there's no one who can take in the sacrifice. You see, we've reached the stage now in Revelation where we're reach, it's a climax. We're coming to the point where time, it says, shall be no more. Time shall be no more. Because it's in time that there's opportunity to repent. There's none when God calls down the curtain on time. There's no further appeals. You see, what's happened is the court has already sat. And the, the, the sentence has been passed. And now... All you're waiting for is what's happening here is the actual execution of the judgment. The court sat, all right? The case has been heard. The judgment has been passed. The sentence has been passed. And now the judgment, the fulfilling of that sentence is what's left. I don't know. I, I think of it. I think of those awful situations when, let's say back in the 50s, the 40s, whatever, when the death penalty was uh, quite common for murder. You know, you might have watched it in some of the old videos and movies and that sort of thing where, you know, there's this solemn situation when finally the jury is called back in and they're asked, have you reached a verdict? And the verdict comes out guilty, guilty. And the judge, suddenly the court goes silent and the judge has that solemn look on his face and he takes that black cloth cap and puts it on his head, you know? He calls the prisoner by name. He said, you've been found guilty of the murder of whoever it is, X, Y, Z. And the sentence he pronounces is, I pronounce that, for that you will be taken to a place of execution and there hung by the neck until you are dead. You see the man walk out of that courtroom. See, the case has been heard. It's been heard. The pleas have been made but sentence been passed. Goes to a cold, dark cell and he sits there. Think of that. Think of the despair. All he's looking at is the outcome, the execution of that sentence. It may be a day, it may be a week, and then finally that awful scenes where he's finally let out to face the consequences 
of the deeds that he has done and of the life that he has lived. And here we are, that's the picture we've got here, exactly the picture here. There is no prayer that can be heard. There is no priest that is able to stand. There is no plea that can be made. And there is no pardon that can be had because there is no one to take in the sacrifice. And notice that the judgment itself is coming out from the temple here, from that inner sanctum. Later on, we will also see that it comes from the altar, and later on, we'll see it's coming from the throne. But in this picture here, and let's stick with the picture for the minute, it's coming out of the temple. And it's coming out from the very presence of God in the inner sanctum, if you like, right into the place where God's glory actually is in that Holy of Holies. Now, what was in the Holy of Holies? What was right inside? Well, there, there it is. There's the ark. That's the thing I want you to look at for a minute. That, that, that wooden box overlaid with the gold, there it was, right in the presence of God. And then on the top, the part of it was called the mercy seat. And coming up out of the sides of it, there were two cherubim. They're guarding the righteousness of God. They're looking down on the mercy seat. They're looking to see blood. Because if there's blood, there's been punishment. There's been a sacrifice for sin. There's been an acknowledgement of guilt and the sentence has been passed and the execution has taken place on behalf of the one who comes to approach. And the priest could come without fear if he brought with him the blood on the day of atonement and placed it there. And those cherubim just looked down and they never moved. They never moved and judged. They didn't smite down the priest because he had a sacrifice for sin. They were guarding the righteousness of God. No one else would dare to draw near except the priest appointed with the sacrifice. Okay. Inside that, on the top, that's the mercy seat. Inside you had three things. You had the rod of the priest in there. You had a little golden pot that was filled with manna, the bread which came down from heaven and fed God's people in the wilderness. And it was there every morning. And it's a picture what? Of feeding in the wilderness. No, it's a picture of the Lord Jesus when he said, I am the true bread which came down from heaven. He that eateth of me shall never hunger. He that drinketh of me shall never thirst forever. The answer to every need. So you've got the rod of the priest. That's Christ, of course. And you've got the manna, and it's Christ, of course. But then you had something else. You had in there the two tables of stone with the Ten Commandments on. And that's God's law. And those tables screamed judgment. They created guilt in detail. They spelt out sin and what it was. And they showed the righteousness and justice of God. Spelling out condemnation, consequences, and judgment. Now that's what's in that ark. That's what's in the very presence of God from which this is all coming. But the truth is this, you see. In this terrible day when no man can go in, there is no priest. Forget about the rod. There is no point in talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who's the bread that's come down from heaven because they've rejected him. It's a terrible thing that Jesus is rejected. A terrible thing. This same Jesus, whom you have crucified... God hath made both Lord and Christ. This same Jesus shall so come again in like manner as you saw him go up. He went up in power and great glory and the clouds received him out of their sight. He'll come back with thousands, thousands saints attending. Swell the triumph of his train. 
as we were listening last night, behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and all kindreds and nations of the earth shall wail because of him when he comes back to establish the kingdom of God and its rule and power, and to put down all other authority, and to put all the enemies of God right under his feet. What you've got here is God's law standing unsatisfied. And that's what it's going to be like in that final analysis when all of us stand before God. And in one way or another, it will happen to every man or woman, saint or sinner. They will stand in the presence of God. I'm not going into the details or the differences. That's the hardcore truth that we need to stay with. And we will face God, the God and his law and his Ten Commandments. Don't think the law's gone just belong to the Old Testament. Don't think the Ten Commandments have been forgotten and dissolved. You can't dissolve stone. That's why God wrote them with his finger on stone. He didn't put them in sand where you could just scrub them out. He didn't put them on papyrus and where you could rip them up. It's on stone. For this spells out the holiness and righteousness of God and his justice. That's what it spells out. You stand there and you face God. And you face him and his law and his demands that spell out guilt and consequences. But you know, it's absolutely wonderful when you stand there with the Jesus of Calvary, with the Christ of glory, with the man of Calvary. You stand there and you say, yes, I've got a sacrifice, you see. That's what I've got. You stand there and you say, look, this is wonderful. I've got a substitute. I've got a savior and God sees it. And he says, you're pardoned. Guilt removed. Sentence paid by another You have your substitute in your sacrifice and we stand there because of Christ. Or else you face God and you face his law and you've got no sacrifice, you've got no substitute, you've got no saviour and all you're left with is judgment. So you've got to ask yourself the question now in time while your prayer can be heard, while your plea can be made, where your priest can stand before, stand and plead for you to seek pardon because of his life and death, you've got to ask the question, have you really got the Lord? You've got to ask that. Be real about it. Face it. And when you do, and you stand back, what is it? You say, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Because what happens is, in that final day, we are judged according to our works. Now you say, oh, the Christians are not judged according to their works. Hold it a minute. Let me tell you something. We're just keeping the big pictures, all right? I mean, it's true, judged according to your works. This is pretty, I use the word ghastly, because um, it just tells very, spells out very clearly the fact that God keeps record of sins. Heaven keeps a record of every sin. Every sin. Now, that's not good for any of us, in a sense, when you think about it like that. But the books are open. There's a record kept. And what happens is this, in that record, the soul that sins, it shall die. And when... When a person stands before God, unforgiven, unpardoned, with no saviour, they have to admit that they're guilty, and all the world is going to be held guilty with before God, and every mouth is going to be stopped. And they will be judged because of the breaking of that law. We need to get a clear picture of the law. It didn't come to an end in the Old Testament. It still stands demanding satisfaction, and only the Christian knows the answer to that and what that means to have that satisfaction when sin has been atoned for, as God has been satisfied. 
But the Christian will stand there, as it were, in that day, we'll say, before God. And we're going to be judged what? We're going to be judged on the basis of what he has done. Isn't that lovely? We know what we are. We know what we are. We know what we've done. But the beautiful fact is, we have a sacrifice, we have a substitute, we have a saviour. And as we sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. You see, you've got the outcome, and it's an eternal life, and it's an eternal salvation, and it's not an eternal damnation. And don't forget who the judge is, will you? Don't forget that. Because the very one who came to save is the very one who now has come to judge. It's the lamb who administers the judgment of God. And the minute you think of the lamb, you think of a salvation, of a substitute, of a blood that was shed. But the terrible thing is the one who could have been their saviour in that coming day will take the ungodly and he will be their judge. He has appointed a day, God has, in which he will judge the whole world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And he has committed all judgment into the hand of the Son. And he who paid the price of that law, he who bore the sentence of that guilt and carried it himself is the very one who will turn and act in judgment. The one who came out from the very presence of God, when, as it were, the, the temple was opened in its fullness and the heart of God was revealed. When he came out as a saviour and he moved amongst sinful men and he drew near to them and he cried out, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Such wonderful words of love and calling of the sinner to himself. He comes out now and he says, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. This is solemn stuff in the scripture. Don't lose the point of it. Don't lose a sense of it, of who God really is. And God will see to it that every knee does bow and every tongue does confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the thing and the tragedy is that the one who's coming to judge, the judge himself is the very one who kept that law perfectly, the law that's condemning the sinner. He kept it Perfectly, he paid its penalty fully and he offers a pardon from it freely. You see the contrast, don't you? Behold, what is it? The goodness and the severity of God. It'd be a terrible thing to stand in that day with no saviour, no sacrifice, no plea, just wrath. It does talk of, you know, awful pictures like there'll be weeping and there'll be wailing and there'll be, be gnashing of teeth, but it, it doesn't matter it will make no difference how great the remorse and the grief is or how loud is the cry. There will be no one to answer for God is not listening now. Have you ever thought of the days of Noah and the judgment of God on the earth, one of the great scenes of judgment in the scripture? Don't think God won't judge. He already has. Picture after picture of God's judgment. And the the picture of the ark to me is absolutely dreadful because the gospel was preached in those days. A way of escape was was offered. Coming judgment was declared. People were more than adequately warned and a way of escape was available. There's the ark getting built. The door is opened. And the preacher, he's mocked. What a fool, Noah. And the message of coming judgment is disbelieved. And the warning of the wrath of God is totally and absolutely ignored. You can see the parallels, can't you, as it was in the days of Noah. You can see it. And then what happens? The door is shut, you see. 
Now, Noah didn't shut that door, by the way. God shut that door. He shut that door. And then the judgment begins, just like we're seeing with the pouring out of these bowls, you see. This time God was pouring out his wrath and the rain starts to come. Just a few drops, was it? Yes, and then it got heavier. Yes, then it got heavier still. And then the fountains of the deep opened up. And you can see the people sort of suddenly realizing that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And they, as it were, go for higher ground and higher ground, higher ground until the final awful scene I see it in my mind is when people are just floundering out of their depth in water, crying out to Noah, let us in, let us in, let us in. But the door stays shut. The door stays shut. Opportunity has been offered, given, but not taken. It's a terrible day, the great day of wrath. It's time perhaps we really sat down and thought about it. We must all meet God. Every man must give account of himself to God. We've lived in another terrible week of human society in Queensland with a voluntary assisted dying bill. Mariners said, I'll die my way. <laughs> what they don't realize is they've actually admitted that they can't beat death. So, all right, we'll take control of it and we'll dictate when we die and we'll dictate how we die. But what they're forgetting is this, what comes after. No control, you see. It's appointed unto man once to die. But after this, there's judgment. Now, look, if this morning we could just turn back and look at that smoke coming out of that temple, we can see the solemn procession of those angels in their white and gold. We can see that angel coming out from the very throne of God. We can see them carrying those bowls ready to be poured out. You're grasping something of the suffocating intensity of the glory of a God who is now moving in judgment against a people who will not repent, who have rejected every offer, who have crucified his son, who have persecuted his people. And in that judgment day, they'll be there without a saviour. You know, I think maybe it's time we thought about that a little more because if you could really get just a, a grip and I could just get a grip of what faces the sinner, I think it would drive us with a deeper intensity into the temple now, into God's house, God's presence now to plead with God on behalf of sinful men. Please, don't, don't ever fall into the trap. And I say it because I've fallen into it many times. You look at people in their sin and you start to think they're disgusting. And it's true. But never lose compassion. There but for the grace of God go I. And if we've been delivered from wrath to come, it's not because of ourselves. Not in any shape or form at all. If you would just get that vision of what faces in eternity the lost and I believe it would stir us up the more to let them see the way of life and truth and righteousness. You know, C.T. Studd, you know, the great English cricketer who was also a great missionary. He was a very zealous missionary, a long story about him. 
But I think he, he, what drove him in his evangelism was a sense of this, the coming wrath of God. And he said those incredible words, some like to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I'd rather run a rescue shot within a yard of hell. That's what drove the man. A sense of the coming judgment and of the need to declare the message of salvation. And may this morning our hearts just be caused to think again and give us a burden and a real compassion for those that are lost. And a deep, deep gratitude for Jesus, our deliverer from wrath that is to come. Amen. So, Father, we just bow our hearts and bow our heads. For we have known there is mercy with thee that thou mayest be feared. We look forward to the coming of the Lord, not for judgment, but for redemption. We say the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, abundant in mercy, in goodness and in truth, keeping mercy for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, that will by no means clear the guilty. O oh, our God and our Father, Send us away this morning with a joy in our hearts that we've been saved by the grace of God. Send us away with a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We give our thanks in his precious name. Amen.